This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, for years, our media have reported on and even gotten behind impassioned calls for greater rights for Kiwis living in Australia. The new government there has finally agreed to give them the rights its own citizens enjoy. But in our media, fear of the brain drain deepening seems to have drowned out a long-demanded victory. Better life to get murdered by a jellyfish. Uh. There's a lot to watch out for in Australia. But before that, for almost 25 years, our biggest publisher of news has put almost all its stuff online for free. But this week it emerged that could be coming to an end, but not for everyone. The Capital's last daily paper, the Dominion Post, is dropping the word Dominion from its name. And its parent company is signalling further change. The Dom, uh, which started 21 years ago as a merger of the Dominion and the Evening Post, is being rebranded to just The Post. That was RNZ's Max Toll on Midday Report back on the 14th of April, the day the front page of the Capitals Daily declared boldly it was under no one's dominion. And as the word itself was a legacy of New Zealand's British Empire past, it was past time to retire it, the paper said, and become simply The Post, a change which kicked in for the first time this weekend. But what was that further change that Max Toll mentioned there? Well, invites for a fancy function at the Beehive last Thursday said there would be a full disclosure by 5.30 that night, sparking speculation that something much more than a symbolic name change was afoot. The editor-at-large at Stuff's big rival The Herald, Shane Carey, had already been reporting in his weekly column that Stuff was planning to bring in digital subscriptions, commonly called paywalls, online around the country. And that was indeed the headline that came out of Thursday's big reveal at Parliament. Let's talk media now, because Stuff will soon begin charging readers for some of its content. Access to its main national news website, stuff.co.nz, will remain free, but uh, it is launching a subscription-based service for websites for the press, the Waikato Times and the Dominion Post. Now, for almost 25 years, our biggest publisher of news has put almost all its stuff online for free. So why change now? Well, in a minute, we'll ask the company's boss. But for some, the key question was, what took you so long? Just the day before, Stuff's rival NZME revealed at its annual general meeting that more than half of its news subscribers now have digital New Zealand Herald premium content accounts. But it took the Herald a while to make that leak too. Back in April 2017, Shane Curry, who was then the Herald's managing editor of news, told a journalism conference this. We as an industry made some big errors 20 years ago when, um, when our websites did come live and that we put all of that journalism and content up for free. People are used to that now and there's no going back on that in my view. Uh, I do think people will pay for quality journalism, for journalism that's unique, that they can't find elsewhere, that um, is not commodity news. And a year earlier, the NZME chief executive at that time, Jane Hastings, told MediaWatch a paywall was ready to roll back then. They only needed to flick a switch. Have we decided to turn it on um, at this point in time? We're still assessing what's right for this market, recognising that the New Zealand market is different. And even two years before that, TV3 was saying 2014 would be the year of the paywall. The Gisborne Herald, Ashburton Guardian and Fakatani Beacon had all started charging readers already online, and Mark Longley from the latter said this. We just thought it was unsustainable to give your a product that you're expecting people to pay for in a, in a newspaper format to give it away for free online. After the initial kind of shock, people really took it on board and, and subscribed. 
business publication NBR had already put up an online paywall as well, and eventually it ditched its print edition altogether. So in the end, it wasn't until 2019 that The Herald launched its digital subscriptions for premium content at the cost of $5 a week, while still keeping access to its main website free, part of a strategy to make New Zealand's Herald out of what had historically been an Auckland paper and brand. And NZME has now all but hit its target set in 2020 of 210,000 subscriptions by the end of 2023. Now, other long-established news publishers have also agonised over the same decision about paywalls. The ODT told its newspaper subscribers back in 2016 it was putting up a paywall online but didn't actually do it until last September, charging $15 a month. Grant McKenzie has been the chief executive officer at publisher Allied Press since 2016. It was yeah, it was a difficult decision because, rightly or wrongly, the industry's done a fantastic job in giving our content away for free. People think that they should get news for free, but there's significant costs associating. If you go back to the early days, the, the advertising model was a lot more lucrative than it was today. I'm sure the business models at those times uh, showed it could pay, but um, you know that that hasn't been the case. Yeah, because the old so, yeah. the old digital companies got pretty good at getting in on the game and intercepting the ad income, didn't they? The likes of Google and Facebook oh, well, and so on. Yeah, well, they've, they've done a fantastic job and they've got very sound business models. So, um, yeah, good on them. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, I liken it to a bank uh, where you know, you're borrowing money from them and you don't have to pay any interest on it. You know, your business model long term is fundamentally flawed, so you have to have a subscriber content. So once you do bring in uh, the paywall, uh, that you, you go online and it's pretty clear there are stories there that are interesting, but you have to be a subscriber, a little yellow tag on there, that gives you the message you've got to pay. Does that mean the online reach of your news has actually gone down because of putting up the paywall? Uh, we've actually seen growth on our website traffic and unique visitors in particular. So uh, they're up uh, about 10% on what they were the prior year. And ironically, we've also seen growth in our uh, readership on, of our print edition. So Nielsen also do research on readership across the industry and for the December quarter, you know, we were up to 95,000 for the ODT compared to 93,000 a year before. So we're actually seeing growth in both areas. So readership goes up, but what about the actual sales of the print edition, though? I imagine that can't be climbing. I mean, those are in decline pretty much across the board. So it comes back to the point that our subscribers overall between this year and last year are up because we're seeing significant growth in digital and a slow decline in our print subscribers. So you know, overall, that is positive for us. But if some readers did substitute their print subscription for a digital one, because it'll probably be a bit cheaper to do digital only, do you have to make the calculation that, look, in the longer term, even if it's a, a lower yield per subscription, that it's better to get them as paying digital customers uh, before they go elsewhere? Yeah, well, consumer trends are changing, and effectively what we need to do is we need to try and keep up those changes those who that subscribe get benefit benefits and those who don't. That a lot of our traditional uh, newspaper readers love those e editions because yeah, so the e edition is effectively a digital copy, a facsimile of what the actual print paper looks like. That is. So so it, it, it's we're trying to get the best of both worlds for our customers. So it's interesting that staff have chosen to do it just with their bigger titles uh, initially. But do you expect that at some point their regional uh, titles around the country, including one that's in your neck of the woods, I guess, Southland Times or possibly Timaru Herald a bit, a bit further north, those stuff, regional papers, 
now will be just about the only ones that have a cover price on them that actually aren't, at the very least, offering a digital subscription as well. I'm more worried about my business and what stuff's doing. They, they'll have to make that decision and there'll be a commercial decision, I'm sure, what they will what they will do. But perhaps the consumer, at the very least, has to, uh, has to get used to and expect that uh, free news online certainly won't last forever from papers that actually expect people to pay for a print edition. Well, I agree, but we've also got to look at the reason why we're getting people to pay is the fact that, for us, we employ 97 journalists across uh, the, the, the South Island. There's no-one else uh, provides the news that we do in our region. Now, journalism is a cornerstone of a democracy, um, and if we don't have that, it's a real worry for society. That was Grant McKenzie, the Chief Executive Officer at Allied Press, the publisher of the Otago Daily Times, which put up a paywall last September after several years of thinking about it. So that left stuff as just about the last one standing without a paywall until this week. So why now? A question for Stuff's chief executive and owner, Sinead Boucher. Over the last couple of years, we had a lot of work to do to sort of stand up as an independent business and you know a lot of investment to make in the right kind of technology and people and capability. We've come to the point really where we have you know, made those investments and uh, and rolled out the, the right technology in the business to enable us to launch these new digital products. Um, here they are. What's going to be the cost? Because uh, you didn't say that in the statements on Thursday. If you're a subscriber already for the press or the post or Waikato Times and you get um, the newspaper delivered every day, you will have access to the whole network, not just to your one masthead. Um, and then in terms of new digital subscribers, we will have a... You know, introductory offer of $1.99 a week, but our standard pricing will be $5 a week after that. That pretty much matches the standard offer by your rivals at the New Zealand Herald for their premium content subscriptions, which uh, I guess to, to mark their fourth anniversary, they very generously uh, discounted that as well. I'm sure that timing is uh, no coincidence. However, look, there's going to be a new name for the post. Are you also going to change... The journalism, the statement spoke of uh, the the Post, uh, formerly Dominion Post, for example, ramping up political coverage and maybe more sort of national issues. Uh, the statement also said, look, the press and Waikato Times will continue with their specific local focus in, in their regions of Canterbury and Waikato. But, you know, perhaps some suggestions that other types of issues, environmental issues, for example, the press will be. Are you, are you changing the focus of these and maybe trying to make the newly renamed Post a more of a national publication? First of all, you know, we will still have stuff.co.nz as our major daily news site, everything people want to know there and then. And then the masthead sites will um, provide a, you know, unique set of subscriber-only content that is different from stuff. And for those different mastheads, that will be a different recipe depending on the audience they serve. So, you know, the press is really not only everything about Christchurch, it's about the issues that really matter to Canterbury and to the mainland. And there are some specific issues down there that really are important to um, the people who live in that part of the country, and that's what that editorial team will be really focusing on. Um, Ditto in Waikato, you know, uh, again, there's a specific set of stories, issues, topics that that audience is really interested in as they relate to their region. And here in Wellington, um, where I'm based, the Post will still be the paper for Wellingtonians, but in the digital uh, site particularly, and under the banner of the Post, it's about reinvigorating and you know, resetting you know, what this paper's publication is all about. 
post will be the paper of the capital. So anything you need to know about what's happening in the corridors of power, what decisions are being made or likely to be made in government or in the public service or what regulation is coming down the pipeline, all those things, they affect everybody, right? And they particularly affect um, businesses and um, people trying to make decisions about um, their own lives. So the post will really um, uh, sort of increase its content mix to double down on those topics as they would be interesting to people anywhere in the country, not just Wellingtonians. So what are you then withholding from those three titles that the freeloaders who just hook into stuff.co.nz, what will they be missing out on because you're asking people to pay in those three other locations? Stuff readers won't be missing out on anything that they don't already consume every day. We are, we're specifically creating a new, um, a new sort of environment and specific focus on that masthead subscriber content. Now, some of that is already, you know, obviously created every day out of those fantastic newsrooms, but it can get lost on stuff in terms of, you know, all the things that are happening through the country. I think in general terms, if something is live, if it's breaking, it's what's happening today, that's what role stuff will play. But the journalism that's specific to different regions, um, you know, and audiences, and is a much more of a lean back subscriber experience that will be on the paid for digital sites and in print too, of course. So when you log in, for example, to the Otago Daily Times website, you can see clearly yellow tags on the items on their homepage that clearly indicate that those are uh, subscriber-only content. You can't see them, can't read them if you haven't paid up. Is that going to be the same experience for people logging on to the sites of The Post, The Press and Waikato Times from now on? No, not quite, because um, in their instances, they are like a single masthead site. Everything they produce goes into that one, um, you know, either the ODT or the NZ Herald. But for us, we have stuff as the, you know, biggest site in the country, um, and that will all remain free. And on the separate masthead sites for the press, the post and the Waikato Times, they will be subscriber access only. So, of course, we will be you know, making sure people can have a taster of that content, see what's there. Um, but to read the stories and to um, you know, consume the whole experience, you will need to be a subscriber. So your regional papers, you have six other titles which are not having paywalls attached to them, the likes of, say, the Timaru Herald, Southland Times, or Manawa Two Standard, just to name three of them. Why not attach paywalls to those? Or is this coming down the pipeline that people will have to pay to get all the content from those titles as well in the future? Yeah, what we thought we would do is focus initially on our three biggest masthead titles and get the product mix right for those as, as far as we could see, launch them out there and see you know, how people respond, what do we need to tweak, um, what could we add, and then you know, look to do the regionals um, and the Sunday Star Times after that. But the cost of print is going up. I mean, literally even the cost of the paper has been a real issue over the last year. Circulation's been in decline for some time for the bigger titles and the smaller ones. Does the launch of digital subscriptions bring forward the time when some titles do literally go out of print and you know, available electronically only uh, in the future? I don't see that. I don't see that. Look, you know, none of us um, could say how um, how much longer news 
papers and print will be, but all we can say is that they still have a very long and vibrant future ahead of them. And that's based on the demand from our subscribers and people who just pick one up in the supermarket or a cafe and for our advertisers as well. Like, you know, I think that's where we've been really pleased with how stable our subscriptions and advertising has been, particularly coming through the post-COVID years. Um, and we're now looking for opportunities to grow further into digital and, and being able to fund that journalism as well. Well, your rivals at NZME set a target in 2020, which they say they've now reached, and uh, that by the end of 2023 they wanted, I think, 110,000 subscribers and they're already there for premium content accounts. What's your target for uh, converting subscribers uh, to digital and indeed attracting new ones if you can? We certainly have those targets internally and um, and are sort of confident of being able to reach them. But um, we have uh, a different ownership structure. and We don't need to necessarily report those things. Well, you, you could report them publicly on this program if, if you wish to. I could, I could report them to my AGM of one. That was the chief executive and owner of Stuff, Sinead Boucher. Well, there's more bad news for the stressed health workforce with more and more junior doctors leaving the country before they complete their training to become specialists. The Association of Salaried Medical Specialists puts the loss rate at 40%. It was just 16% a few years ago. That was Corin Dan on Morning Report last Wednesday. And four out of ten much-needed medical specialists leaving New Zealand is clearly bad news for us, as he said there. Now, the source of that story on Morning Report was RNZ's Phil Pennington, who said the main destination for them was Australia, and this was one of the reasons. What happened um, several years ago is they made the training systems in Australasia seamless. They lined up the years. They used to be slightly out of alignment, and that's made it actually easier for the junior doctors here who are just on the point of getting vocation registered. That means when they're about to become an ophthalmologist or an orthopaedic surgeon, they can jump to Australia. And, of course, Australians are like, wow, great, we didn't pay for this training and here we're getting them, you know. Yes. Well, there's nothing new about the so-called brain drain across the ditch, but it's not just trans-Tasman medical training timetables for prospective specialists that will be much more aligned in the future. After a recent visit by our Prime Minister, theirs announced that Kiwis over there will soon have a smoother pathway to Australian citizenship in future. Now, for years, our media have run stories about the suffering of our second-class citizens over there. But, as Hayden Donnell now reports, the good news about a hard-won victory on that got a bit drowned out by fears of the deepening brain drain. Thank you very much for agreeing to have a talk to me, Minister. I wanted to start off with the simple question. Why are Kiwis treated like second-class citizens here in Australia? It's a really important question, and that's something that's really been bothering me for a long time, and I know bothers our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. That was One News correspondent Andrew McFarlane talking to the Australian Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill in late 2022. Her admission came after years of reporting on the perilous legal status of New Zealanders living long term across the ditch. They've been denied disability payments, job seeker support and student loan services in Australia since the introduction of a 2001 law limiting their pathways to citizenship. That's resulted in hardship and complaints about unequal treatment. Back in 2011, Kiwis living in Australia were denied government assistance after being caught up in the Queensland floods. 
This is the lead sentence from a stuff story at the time. First, floodwater trashed Jade Foley's Brisbane home. Now, a lack of help from the Australian government threatens to leave her financially ruined. In 2014, Stuff reported on a sick toddler who was denied health care in Australia because his parents were Kiwis, despite him having never set foot in New Zealand. It also published an investigation on what it called discrimination across the ditch in 2018, highlighting the case of a woman who fell into depression and drug addiction after being unable to access support following the death of her child. This coverage has been matched in other media, which has consistently called out the Australian government for collecting New Zealanders' taxes, but failing to offer them the same rights as other citizens. Given that, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins was probably expecting a glowing reception and a run of good press when he stepped up to a media scrum on Saturday last week to say this. Kia ora koutou everybody, good morning, it's great to be here, it's a a very significant day for the Trans-Tasman relationship, a very positive day uh, for the relationship between New Zealand and Australia. Uh, Today we welcome the historic decision to provide a new direct pathway to citizenship for New Zealanders who are living in Australia. Hipkins did get some positive coverage for the move on the front pages of last weekend's editions of the Weekend Herald, the Press and the Dominion Post. But as it turns out, putting an end to a 22-year problem only wins you about six hours of good headlines. By early Saturday afternoon, a less celebratory angle was starting to cut through on the websites of our major news organisations. Both the Herald and Stuff ran versions of this headline. Fear of exodus of New Zealand workers to Australia after citizenship change. Those worries amped up the following day. The Sunday Star Times carried two profiles on New Zealanders packing their bags and moving across the ditch. Its editor Tracy Watkins accompanied those with a stinging editorial about the big fish hook in the Australian citizenship deal, which ended with this line. Will the last one to leave please turn off the lights? On Wednesday, TVNZ Seven Sharp joined the chorus, warning that Australia is stealing our workers just like they did with our best horse and our sweet treats. We're used to Australia taking things from us. Farlap, the pav, crowded house and don't forget lamingtons. Well, it turns out they're at it again. This time, it's Aussie employers trying to poach hard-working Kiwis. Now, that might have been a bit tongue-in-cheek and Seven Sharp's story delivered a useful comparison of the wages and conditions workers can expect in New Zealand and Australia. In the New Zealand Herald, though, commentator Richard Preble was less constrained by facts, figures or indeed reality itself, writing that New Zealand is becoming a third-world country and Australia is only changing its citizenship rules to strip this country of our best. The overarching theme of the coverage was that getting a better deal in Australia might leave some New Zealanders with little reason to stay here, and the rest of us worse off as a result. There's one small problem with that assertion. It doesn't appear to have much, if any, real data underpinning it. The economist Shamabil Jakob noted that immigration to Australia peaked in 2013 and has since dropped off. Infometrics Chief Executive Brad Olson told AM a pathway to citizenship probably won't be the biggest draw for New Zealanders thinking of heading across the Tasman. 
I don't know if it moves the dial considerably for Kiwis wanting to move over to Australia. There's already a lot of reasons that people have been considering doing so. Uh, our analysis shows that you can earn around $200 a week New Zealand, uh, more if you're in Australia than if you're here. Uh, but of course, if that was the case for everyone, there wouldn't be anyone left in New Zealand. At the least, it's too early to say whether there's, in Stuff's words, a great exodus underway. Other commentators criticised the negativity of the coverage. The media isn't a behemoth with a unified perspective, but politicians and news audiences could be tempted to feel like they've been the victim of a bait-and-switch after seeing 20 years of stories highlighting a pressing human rights issue, only to immediately see lines like this getting mass cut through when it gets resolved. We just got played by the Aussies. The Aussie government played Hipkins like a didgeridoo. You know, they have just done a raid on New Zealand talent. Yeah. And Hipkins is over there smiling, saying how wonderful it all is. In fact, he's trying to say that it's one of the Labour government's most substantial achievements, which is helping New Zealanders live in another country. At Newstalk ZB, afternoon host Heather Duplessis-Allen said she couldn't get behind this backlash. Right, there are a bunch of commentators who are seeing negative in Australia's immigration announcement at the weekend. I totally disagree with them. This is one of the most positive and significant changes for New Zealand in the ANZAC relationship. In The Guardian, commentator and former Stuff political reporter Henry Cook took aim at those trying to paint the deal as a bad thing, saying their arguments do New Zealand a disservice. He said people should focus more on making New Zealand better for workers rather than making sure Australia stays worse. The answer to this challenge shouldn't be just trying to build the walls up higher or guilt Kiwis into staying. It should be making New Zealand as good a place to live as Australia with comparable or better incomes and working conditions. Cook noted that Australia consistently pays out a higher proportion of its GDP in wages. But analysis of why that is and how to put New Zealand on par has been limited and the media bemoaning the trans-Tasman wage discrepancy might have done more to look at what's actually behind it. For instance, Australia has better productivity than New Zealand's. It has lower taxes on low- and middle-income workers, a higher minimum wage, and a long-standing modern awards system similar to the fair pay agreements legislation recently introduced here. A deep dive into those topics and their impact might have been more useful than articles on whether we got played by making sure sick and otherwise out-of-luck New Zealanders can access government support in Australia. Maybe the quick turn toward pessimism was predictable. Negativity bias in the news is an extensively studied phenomenon. It's pervasive, and not only in stories on Australian citizenship. For instance, this segment on MediaWatch isn't focusing on the hundreds of worthy and informative stories published by the New Zealand media this week, and instead is honing in on some coverage I've been critical of. Even if, in the words of one 2001 review paper, bad is stronger than good, that bias comes at a cost. A recent trust in media survey run by AUT produced a startling finding. New Zealanders are world leaders at tuning out the news, with 69% of respondents saying they actively avoid it at least some of the time, and just 37% of us taking high interest in what's being reported. When asked why they were switching off, a common response was that the coverage is depressing and divisive. The potential for an increase in people moving to Australia is a worthy topic to cover. New Zealand does have a skills shortage and workers leaving for greener pastures is a genuine concern. But 
This week's coverage could feel a little bit like a slap in the face to the New Zealanders who have spent more than 20 years living as, in the media's own words, second-class citizens. Perhaps our news organisations could do a little better at reporting and contextualising how their lives have improved in real terms, rather than just fretting over as yet unrealised scenarios where their gain might be our loss. Hayden Dinell there on the good news about a hard-won victory for Kiwis' rights in Australia, getting a bit drowned out by media reports of a deepening brain drain. And finally in Media Watch this weekend, as we heard there, one of the reasons that people might be thinking of leaving to live in Australia is our high cost of living. And last week, political reporters, business editors and economic experts alike were all eagerly awaiting the fresh consumer price index data, which would indicate whether inflation here was finally coming down or not. Westpac's economists forecast a rate rise up a bit to 6.9%, BNZ and Kiwi Bank economists plumped for 7.1%, while ANZ and ASB economists predicted a surge to 7.2%, the level inflation was at in the December and September quarters. But in the end, it was a different outcome that led News Hub at 6 that night, like this. Annual inflation now stands at 6.7%. That's half a percent drop on the last time we checked in on it and lower than many experts were predicting. What that means is the cost of living is still rising, but not quite as fast as before. And that also meant that the experts, who we heard plenty from in advance, were mostly wrong. Under the headline, Inflation Rate Falls Big Time in Surprise Result, Liam Dan, the Herald's business editor-at-large, said inflation appears to have peaked and come in lower than expected, and lower than Australia's. And that prompted the Herald's front-page podcast, to ask Liam Dan this last Friday. Why did our economists get it so wrong? The one factor you can probably put a finger on is that we were more gloomy than we needed to be about the impact of the cyclone. So it did push uh, fresh fruit and veg prices up quite a bit. It was you know, probably expected, but so there was an expected bump, but not as bad. And construction and building costs and so on have continued to come off. And they, while there may be some inflationary impacts from the cyclone, it looks like they're spread out across a longer time frame. So in a way, it's pulled us back to kind of the inflation expectations that we might have had late last year. And this week, Australia's inflation rate fell too, as Channel 9 reported there last Wednesday. New data showing the quarterly consumer price index at 7%, that's down from 7.8%, but higher than expected. And the UK and Germany still have higher inflation rates than us, but not the US or Japan. Now in the Herald, Liam Dan said that fresh food was the largest contributor to our inflation rate. It's the highest rate of increase in food prices since 1989 that was recorded in March, partly because of the disruption of Cyclone Gabriel. But in the UK this week, stratospheric increases in the cost of fresh food were also coming through, as downcast LBC radio host James O'Brien told his listeners this week. 73% rise in the cost of sausages. That's that's astonishing, isn't it? Milk up uh, 33% in a year. This is in the three months, actually, to March 2023, compared to the three months to March 2022. Cheddar cheese up 28%. Milk, semi-skimmed, 33%. Even potatoes, uh, uh, even the stuff we can grow ourselves, it's been explained to us. And what made it all the more galling for Brits was that these same increases are not being seen around Europe. 
and people in business who were pushing Brexit in the media in the past had insisted food prices could only come down when the UK was out of the EU. And James O'Brien was calling them out, like, for example, the boss of the national pub chain Weatherspoons, Tim Martin. Credit where credit is due. That Weatherspoons bloke, he really knew what he was talking about. We can reduce food prices for everyone in the country and save £200 million a week. What do you do with people like this? These people were everywhere. He was probably on LBC, was he, every ten minutes? But on LBC, James O'Brien then posed an interesting question. Should media outlets, including his own, which aired non-expert predictions like that, which turned out to be wildly wrong, take responsibility for it? But what happens now? Where, where are the, what do you do if you had him on your show as a guest? And, and I conveyed to you as a listener to this radio station that this clown knew what he was talking about, that he was worth listening to, that he had some sort of authoritative foundation for his pronouncements. What do I do now? Do I write you all a cheque? Do I help you with your food bills? Or do I stick my fingers in my ears and start talking about smart motorways? I honestly don't know. And James O'Brien went on to give his listeners another idea he thought might help. There's wrong, right? And then there's mistaken. But there is adamantly right, despite being completely wrong. And, and, you know, when historians of the future come to try to understand what the hell happened, people like him... Uh, They're going to need chapters of their own, aren't they? But all too often, though, there is no such reckoning. The same media-friendly experts are invited back to have another guess the next time the same issue arises or the next set of data is due out. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday on nights with Midweek Media Watch and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.